G'day and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. This week, we're focusing on property, banking and storms. The Australian real estate market continues to boom and now Hobart is joining in the fun. The regulator is cracking down on the banks and in the middle of it all, northern New South Wales and parts of Queensland are underwater in the wake of Cyclone Debbie. But let's start with the actions that banking regulators have announced over the past week to try to cool down the property boom. I asked Sally Ald of JP Morgan to sum it up for us. So we've got a couple of the regulators in play. It all kicked off uh, on Friday of last week when APRA came out and with some announcements around effectively interest-only lending. So, you know, in Australia, about 40% of all new mortgages are interest-only loans. And I guess there's a sense that that's a little bit unusual and probably a little bit unwelcome. So APRA have come out and said, we want the banks to limit that to 30% of new loans. Is that the flow of new loans or the stock of them? Oh, it's basically both. So the, the stock is pretty close to 40% and, and the flow is maybe somewhere between 35 and, and 40 So the stock's sort of holding pretty constant at around 40%. And then they also basically said we want you know pretty strict limits on high LVR lending for interest-only loans. And they also came out and they said, look, you know, a couple of years ago, we put a, a 10% cap on the rate at which you can grow your investor lending book. We're not going to change that, but we want all of the lenders to sit comfortably below 10%. So it sounds like there might be a little bit more intensity in the way regulators go about policing that cap on investor lending. And there were a few other qualitative measures in there that sort of suggest a, you know, a move towards much more, I guess, enhanced scrutiny of what is going on in the banks. ASIC then came out and said, well, we're going to do our bid and we're going to crack down on mortgage brokers um, because we think that's where a lot of the interest-only lending is being originated. So they announced, I guess, tougher surveillance for, for that part of the market. And then yesterday, the chair of APRA announced that the bank regulator would be taking also, aside from this sort of short-term tactical measures, a more strategic approach um, to mortgage lending. And they're going to think about basically lifting the weights that banks have to attach to their mortgage lending when they work out how much capital they need to hold. So the sum of that will be that over the next couple of years, the banks will be forced to raise more capital. That's an expensive exercise for them. And I guess they have sort of two choices. They can either take a knock to bank profitability or they can try and keep profitability you know, where it is by recouping some of those costs by charging higher interest rates. So one gets the sense that, you know, for certain parts of the mortgage market, the cost of borrowing is going to go up over the next little while. And there's probably also a sense that the quantity of credit will probably come off a little bit. So we'll, we'll see slower rates of growth in the, in the stock of outstanding credit. A developer said to me this week that it's a credit squeeze. Would you go as far as to call it that? Well, I think APRA are trying not to engineer that particular outcome because they did say yesterday and last Friday that you know they don't want to be too aggressive effectively on some of these tactical measures because they know that there's um, quite considerable supply coming onto the market, particularly the apartment market over the next couple of years in cities like Sydney, Brisbane and, and Melbourne. So I think they're mindful of not sort of exchanging one tail risk around financial stability for another tail risk that might be more 
sort of macroeconomic in its in its genesis. So I think they understand that they can't choke off the supply of credit because then we're going to be left with a whole lot of apartments that no one can get funding to buy and that wouldn't be a particularly desirable outcome either. So, you know, these things, um, you know, like most policy, you know, there's an element of compromise to all of this, but I think, you know, the regulators are, are sort of trying to really crack down on the lending that doesn't look particularly prudent without choking off supply of credit into the market. But I think, you know, our numbers and our calculations and our sense of all of this would be that, you know, the RBA and APRA want some sort of meaningful response in lending growth. And it sounds to us like these are probably a set of measures where you'll get it. So I wouldn't call it a credit squeeze, but I do think lending growth will slow for sure. Uh, I think you tend to see this as a trade-off, the regulators' actions as a trade-off for interest rate action or moves by in, in interest rates. Does all this make you think... Uh, that the Reserve Bank's going to be more inclined to cut rates again? So the way I would characterise it is to say that what these macroprudential rules do is it gives the bank flexibility on rates should it be needed. And so, you know, I think the, the problem has sort of been that the RBA has been between a rock and a hard place in the sense that inflation is too low relative to the target. Wages growth is very low by historical standards. The unemployment rate is a little higher than they would like it. And that means that they can't use conventional monetary policy to sort of try and head off some of this activity that's going on in housing. By the same token, the inflation story sort of constrained them in dealing with housing, but the housing story has also constrained them um, on dealing with the inflation story. So I think, you know, what we're, what we're sort of hoping is, and what the RBA would be hoping is that these macroprudential rules just take away that binding constraint. So, you know, one does get the sense that some of the data have been a little bit weaker lately. So the unemployment rate looks like it's, it's risen three-tenths of a percent in the last few months. Retail sales were soft. The RBA seems to have become, I guess, less vocal in, in banging the table about its 3% growth forecast. So it doesn't necessarily mean that those guys are about to get out the red pen and mark down their forecasts, but I think it probably does tell you that they sense that the distribution of risks around those forecasts are probably tilting to the downside. So what's your call on interest rates then over the next 12 months? So we haven't changed our call. So we're, we're still looking for 50 points of easing from the RBA in the back half of, of 2017. It feels like that is, you know, a reasonably ambitious call. It does, I must say. Yeah, I mean, I think the way we would think about it is to say we sort of have more confidence in, in the end point, like i.e. that rates will go lower, less confidence in the exact timing of the call. So at the moment, like I said, it's a story for the back half of this year. I, I mean, I do sort of feel that we're at quite an interesting inflection point at the moment, particularly around the labour market, because I think if there's one sole indicator that could really relegate every other consideration to a second order concern and, and get the RBA cutting rates sooner than people think it's the labour market. I mean, this is the one thing that will make them quite worried if the unemployment rate continues to move higher. So I think next week's labour force data will be really important. Even if the unemployment rate stays where it is at 5.9%, I would regard that as a you know an unwelcome development for those guys. And if, if we start sort of printing numbers that have a six in front of them, um, then I think there's a very good chance that the RBA has quite a significant rethink of you know, where, where the economy is headed. But there's much more to the house price boom than lending, although that's a big part of it, of course. The Urban Development Institute says you also have to look at supply and taxes. I spoke to its president, Michael Corcoran. I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, 
you start with the fact that we have positive population growth. And that's coming from both migration and natural birth increase. It's not something that we can ignore. We need to embrace it. And that is, that is the source of the underlying demand. Sure, there are other demand drivers, whether it be overseas investors or you know, investors within Australia, but they're still delivering rental accommodation to um, accommodate our, our growing population. Do we still have a shortfall of property given the amount of supply that's been created? Yes, we do. I mean, every market's different. At the moment, uh, Adelaide and Perth enjoying the sort of population growth and buoyancy in their economy. So supply is ample and demand is subdued. And funnily enough, prices aren't rising rapidly. They're stable or falling and affordability is improving. But in the markets where the economies are strong and a lot of the migration interstate and from overseas is going into you know, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, um, we are falling short on supply and uh, the place that we're still falling short to the greatest degree is Sydney and hence we have uh, the rapid price increase that's unsustainable over time and, and the real issues with affordability. What the government's been on about is supply for a long time now and they keep talking about how they're going to deal with it. Nothing really has obviously been done. What do you think is required to increase supply of housing? There are locations where it has been uh, addressed. I think Melbourne uh, may not have it all perfect, but the levels of supply into the market in Melbourne are at their highest in history. And Melbourne land prices, whilst they are rising, it is still one of the most affordable markets. And if you look at our recently released State of the Land report, it's just come out today, um, you can see evidence of that. Their prices are more stable, it is more affordable, and it aligns with increased supply. And the way that the Victorian government um, and development industry has managed it there is to um, bring certainty to rezonings, to tackle any inefficiencies in the planning approval process, um, and to ensure that taxes, levies and charges are kept under control and not overburdened on the new home buyer. Whereas in Sydney, we aren't enjoying that sort of efficiency. Development approval um, for a like-for-like project, Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney would take somewhere around about three times the amount of time to get approved. So it might not be six months, it may be 18 months. And that constrains supply. What's causing that? Oh, well, I think it's uh, a planning system that's not um, uh, aligned and certain. And it's a planning system where, despite zoning saying a certain type of use is permissible, the steps that need to be gone through, even if it's a permissible um, use under the zoning, are still very uh, slow and and complex. Also, on top of that, you've got a situation in a place like Sydney where 30 to 40% of the cost of delivering a new block of land is federal, state or local government taxes and charges. And that has an enormous impact on the viability of some projects that if they weren't so heavily burdened with taxes and charges, they may be more viable to finance and get into the market to supply the market. What are those taxes? Well, federally, you can talk about, start off with GST, 10%. That applies across Australia, of course, and it applies to the house and to the block of land cost. Now, established housing doesn't, isn't liable for GST. New housing is. So new supply is taxed by the federal governments where established housing isn't. Then you go to state governments and you talk about state infrastructure contributions. They call it the GAIC in Melbourne. In Sydney, it's the SIC. 
and those funds are raised off the new home buyer only, and in many cases to fund infrastructure that benefits a broader community than the new home buyer. Then you go to the local government body and you start talking about local council levies on new development. Again, in Sydney, that can be up to $60,000 per block of land. And uh, the, you know there is a question mark over whether those funds raised really only benefit the new home buyer or, again, the broader community, whether councils are raising these funds out of necessity because their general revenues aren't enough to cover their recurrent operating costs. So all of those things that are... Are these taxes and charges more in Sydney than in Melbourne and elsewhere in the country? Sydney would be, you know, the worst example, but they're still high in Melbourne and Brisbane, and they're climbing. And I think one of the dangers in a rising market is that governments look at that rising market and say, is there an opportunity to capture more tax? Um, we've had a lot of discussion around uh, the whole value capture tax um, uh, debate. Um, UDIA is, um, and the industry is, is generally in favour of true value capture taxes or levies, and that is where infrastructure delivers value creation onto that real estate, and uh, some of that value creation is captured by the government to help pay for that infrastructure. Now, the danger here, though, is if that value captured levy or tax is only levied onto the new home buyer and not the full gamut of beneficiaries that may be established home buyers, office owners, shopping centre owners, all of the beneficiaries, if it's not done in that manner, then it's a narrow high rate on new supply, which undermines that new supply being delivered affordably and at the levels we need. So I think that's one area that concerns us highly, not just the incredibly high amount of taxes and levies on new housing now, but whether there's a march to grab more and value capture isn't used in its, in its uh, true sense. Um, it's just another label for another tax. What are the overall findings of this State of the Land report that you've just put out? I think the key finding is that where supply is meeting demand or exceeding demand, prices are stable or falling and affordability is improving. Where supply is, after our research, is not meeting demand, then the opposite is happening. Prices are rising and affordability is deteriorating. I think the important consideration coming out of that is that if you've got a two-speed economy and a two-speed real estate market where you've got heated states where uh, supply is not meeting demand and you've got other states that uh, the opposite is happening, if measures are used by regulators and governments like APRA constraints on, say, bank funding investors to buy investment properties, if that is applied nationally, what it does is it deeply wounds those state markets like Perth and Adelaide where they don't need those measures to cool the market and you know where the intention is to try and cool the market in the eastern states, which are hotter. So we would prefer to see governments using supply focus to deal with heat in one market and not have to apply that in another market so you can be more surgical as a more responsible and balanced way um, for policy uh, to proceed. Um, it, it, it always concerns us when um, you have these two-speed markets and things like interest rate increases seen as the tool to slow demand 
in one market, but unfortunately they apply across the nation and um, it can do deep damage somewhere else when it's trying to address a concerning situation. So I think that's a big conclusion. Supply can be used focus and infrastructure funding from the federal government into the areas that need more supply can be applied surgically and and strategically. Um, that makes sense. But when you put into place measures um, to cool part of the market that apply across the whole, that can have unintended consequences that wreak havoc on, on those quieter markets. Are you talking there about negative gearing and doing something about capping it? If they were going to make changes to negative gearing, and our policy at UDIA is that um, if you really want to address affordability, you need to take the longer-term uh, strategy of addressing supply and the cost of supply and the efficiency of planning. Negative gearing and capital gains tax uh, are simply a, a measure that's designed to induce and encourage private investment in needed re- rental stocks. It's being used as a bit of a political football in our mind, and it's, and it's really tinkering around the edges of demand. It's populist, I think, at the moment, a, politically, a, a popular sort of area to target. The reality is we have a growing population. Now, whether they're renters or they want to be buyers, they, needed to, they need to be housed. So by tinkering with uh, negative gearing or capital gains tax, and disincentivising private investment in rental stock, I can't see how that could help build the future supply of housing that we need to house our growing population. It just makes no sense. In the month of March, the median house price in Hobart jumped 3.1%, the most in the country and more than double the increase in Sydney in that month. It's only one month, of course, but maybe Hobart's time has come. House prices there have been flat for 10 years, while they've doubled in Sydney and gone up 50% in Melbourne, and the Tasmanian economy is starting to look okay. So I thought it might be a good idea to check in with a Hobart real estate agent about how to think about investing in property in that city. After all, it's hard to see much in the way of capital gains for a while in Sydney and Melbourne. Here's Paul Farrelly of Nest Property in Hobart been a really good six months to be quite honest but even in the last three we've certainly noticed that uh, there's a lot more inquiry from uh, mainland states especially Sydney investors and people that are looking to maybe change lifestyle um, because of the fact of the prices just being unaffordable um, they're looking at Tasmania and especially Hobart as a real option for them so we're getting plenty of inquiry a lot of people looking at uh, buying property down here as an investment first but uh, moving down uh, later in life. What's the split between uh, inquiries from investors and from those who wanted to live there for a change of lifestyle? Look, I would say that you're probably looking at around about 30% of investors at the moment, which is still pretty high. There's obviously some population growth that we're noticing in Tasmania, which has been flat probably over the last five years as a whole, but in the last 12 to 18 months, it's really, really strong. And uh, we're finding that there's a real shortage of properties, which then creates uh, a, r- a real competition for people to secure property, and that's pushing prices up. There's a low level of stock on at the moment. You're probably looking at around about 15% properties currently on the market, um, less than what it was this time last year. And so uh, people that are trying to get into the market, um, you know, they're really having to uh, to push hard and make ac- action uh, happen, you know, as soon as the properties come onto the market, otherwise they're missing out. Do you have any advice for investors looking to to buy in Hobart from either Melbourne or Sydney? 
Well, I certainly would look at inner city properties. Um, obviously, Hobart is a smaller city, so you're finding that within, say, three or four kilometres of the city, still very easy access to both the city for work but also through to uh, the Hobart University. Um, public transport's very easy. People ride bikes into town. It's only 10 or 15 minutes. Shopping centres are only five minutes away. So you've got all the conveniences. Um, so I would be looking at inner-city properties or, or properties that have, are close to uh, the beach or uh, that have a view that there's going to be demand for and also in suburbs that you might find that there could be some rezoning down the track. They're only small pockets, but if you can find those sort of suburbs such as Rose Bay, uh, Lindisfarne, Montague Bay on the eastern shore, and then if you're looking probably at um, places like Moona, uh, Lupana, that are affordable, that are larger blocks, you're looking at around some blocks around the eight to 900 square metre mark, um, they're going to be very, very rare um, if zoning changes down the track. And how much would you pay for a view of the river? Well, you can, you can find properties with views of the river, three-bedroom, one-bathroom, say, in Linda's Farm, which is still only um, five to seven minutes to the city, and you can afford something like that for around four hundred to $450,000. Uh, I mean, that's very, very affordable, and it's just not something that people in Melbourne and Sydney or, or other uh, mainland states can comprehend. So uh, they can come down... Um, check out the island, they see value, they see that there's good rental returns and uh, that's an investment that uh, that's just isn't an option where they currently live. And what sort of rental yields could you expect? Well, you're probably looking at around about the 5 6% for a lot of properties that are in those pockets and in the in the city market that you're looking at at the moment. And, I mean, you compare that to places in Melbourne and Sydney where they might only be getting 2 2.5%. Uh, you know, you might be looking at properties that are around the million-dollar mark that are renting for around about 700000 say, places like Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. So that's very affordable for people down here, and they can certainly see that that's a risk-free investment for them that sort of meets their uh, their mortgage repayments. If you're getting 5 or 6% rental yield, you could just about positively gear it. Well, that's right. I mean, you are looking at properties that are probably older. Hobart's obviously an older city, so um, you do have to be aware that um, you're going to be getting an older property. But by putting money into renovations and things like that, getting depreciation over time, there's certainly uh, an opportunity for people to make very good money and um, and get tax benefits out of it at the same time. Are they renting easily? Yes, they are. There's strong demand for rental properties at the moment, and that's putting pressure on rental prices. And it's a matter of, you know, more properties coming onto the market. There's obviously been a lot of Airbnb lately, and that's putting pressure on prices of rentals because the fact of um, that's an option for investors as well. So, therefore, there's a, there's a lack of properties for people to rent, and that's creating a lot of competition as well. Has the turnaround of the market there come about in any way because of the Mona Gallery? Is that um, part of it, or is it just simply the fact that it's been, uh, the prices have been down so long? Oh, look, I think Mona's really exposed Tasmania and, and put Tasmania on the map, and so therefore it's attracting people from the mainland and international, and the word gets around that you've got some really positive activity, growth, culture. I mean, you've got um, great food and wine down here in Tasmania. The art scene's great. The music scene is, is great. So 
the word's getting around that it's a beautiful lifestyle for people. It's affordable, and um, and there's plenty to do and see if they're coming down for um, for holidays. And some people will utilise Tasmania as an option to have a holiday home, rent it out for a certain amount of time, and use it short term if they're going to come down. Uh, and, and visit for uh, for their annual holidays. And it's very, very busy, obviously, around the Christmas New Year time with the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race and um, the Taste of Tasmania and plenty of activity down in Hobart. And that's a, a time when um, a lot of people have the opportunity to come down and spend some time here. You're a great salesman, Paul. I think I'm, I'm there. Fantastic. I'd love to help any people out there that are looking to buy property and would, uh, add them to the list to uh, become Tasmanians. And by the way, on a related subject, I interviewed Travis Dillon this week, the CEO of Rural Co, for next week's C-Suite, but he had some interesting things to say about the Tasmanian economy as well. So agriculture in Tasmania is already benefiting from the state government investment in Tasmania. So they've um, allocated $200 million to invest in water schemes in Tasmania, and they're halfway through that investment. And so both of our businesses being the uh, the, the rural supplies and, and agency business in Tasmania, but also the water business in Tasmania, um, feeds right into that uh, that government investment. So massive opportunity to grow uh, both the ag sector in Tasmania, and that'll obviously benefit us as well. The um, agriculture sector in Tasmania um, has enormous growth potential and whilst Australia's got a uh, clean and green reputation, um, it's uh, it's another level in Tasmania. So, you know, already there's investment going into uh, to properties in Tasmania to look to export direct to overseas markets. So um, I, I think uh, Tasmania, with the support of the, uh, the state government, are absolutely at the cusp of, uh, of maximising their opportunity in agriculture and that's going to bring enormous benefits to the economy down there. And finally, Cyclone Debbie in the aftermath. Our hearts go out to the people affected by the winds and then the floods, which seem to me, if anything, to be worse. The share prices of IAG, Suncorp and Horizon, among others, have adjusted down by about 5%, which looks reasonable and possibly represents a bit of a buying opportunity for long-term investors. But in many ways, the bigger question is, what's the impact on the economy, specifically on growth and inflation? So I asked Felicity Emmett of ANZ's Economics Department to advise us. Well, there's a couple of ways that it will impact. First of all is the impact on coal exports, and that's probably likely to be the largest impact. There's also the hit to infrastructure in the tourism space, and and that is probably likely to have an effect too. We saw with Cyclone Yazi and the flooding in Queensland in 2010-11 that had quite a big impact. And it looks like Cyclone Debbie will probably have actually a similar impact on GDP as Cyclone Yazi did. Which was what? Well, we think it will probably take around 0.3 percentage points of GDP growth in the second quarter. So most of that is is really around the coal exports. What the problem is here is that there's been quite a bit of damage to the rail network from landslides. And these are the rail that gets the coal to the ports and so uh, there will be the exports will be quite significantly impacted now we did think initially that the mines because the actual mines are less affected that they could continue production 
And so we'd get a build-up in inventories that would offset that fall in exports. But the mines already had quite a uh, few stores of inventories, and so they've got quite reduced capacity to build those inventories further. So it looks as though the mines will have to slow or possibly stop production until they get these rail networks fixed, uh, and that means that uh, coal exports will be affected quite significantly. So when we look back to Cyclone Yazi and the flooding in early 2011, coal exports were down around 15 or 16% in the first quarter then. We think that they'll probably be around something similar to that 13% or so in the second quarter of this year, and that will take about 0.3 percentage points off GDP. I suppose it'll also lop some money off the profits of the coal companies. Well, you know, there's good things and bad things then. So, yes, it will, but also we've seen a big spike in coking coal prices over the past week. So spot coking coal prices are up from about 23%, from $152 to $187 just this week. So there will be a little bit of payback eventually from the pickup in prices. The problem when they have these hits to exports is that it's very difficult for them to catch up. So essentially, it means it's just lost production, lost profits, and lost GDP growth. You know, we won't get a catch-up period in the third quarter to make up for it. So it is just lost production. In fact, Cyclone Yazi caused a small decrease in GDP in 2011. Do you think that's possible this time? It will depend on, obviously, the full impact. It's probably a bit early to tell for Q2, but the numbers at the moment are looking okay for GDP growth at the moment. The thing that we're worried most about probably is the consumer at the moment, which is looking quite weak generally, but that's aside from Cyclone Debbie. And the other thing that happened with both Cyclone Yazi and Cyclone Larry was a bit of a spike in inflation, largely because of the banana crop being wiped out and other products and um, fruit crops in Queensland. What's your uh, assessment of the impact on inflation? It will lift headline inflation. You know, the banana crop was a big issue, in, particularly in Cyclone Larry, when we saw fruit prices up over 50%. And with Cyclone Yazi, fruit prices up over 25%. But this time around, there hasn't been as much damage to the banana crop, and that's largely missed out. But where we've seen the damage has been concentrated in the Bowen and Mackay area where they produce a lot of tomatoes and capsicums. In fact, they reportedly produce 95% of the winter supply for tomatoes and capsicums. So we are likely to see a big spike in those prices. They don't make up as much of the CPI, so the impact won't be as large. And as well, we do import those crops as well. So that will help to take some pressure off prices Whereas with bananas, we don't import them. So there was no way to take the pressure off the prices there. So we've also seen some damage to the sugar crane crop. And so that could also come through to the CPI. I suppose with the CPI, the important thing to remember is that the Reserve Bank will always look through these odd spikes that come about because of agricultural supply issues. So it will cause a big uplift, but it's unlikely to last and it doesn't really have any impact on monetary policy. And anyway, the Reserve Bank, I suppose, wouldn't mind a bit of an increase in inflation at the moment. 
I think they'd be pretty happy to see <laughs> to see a, a quite a significant increase in inflation from where it is now. They would be very happy, but much rather see the increase in consumer prices than increase in house prices that they've seen lately. Oh, and Travis Dillon had a bit to say about the impact of the cyclone as well. And guess what? It'll be a net positive for his business. Definitely for those areas impacted, there's uh, a lot of short-term damage and we've got uh, customers and, and staff as well that have had uh, had their properties and uh, houses, etc. impacted. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's going to hold those areas back. Um, the areas that uh, weren't in the middle of, um, of Cyclone Debbie actually will benefit from those um, rains that have, that have come. So there, there's two stories there, those that are directly impacted and uh, it's going to take a while for them to get back on their feet. But those that... Uh, just receive the rain without uh, being in the eye of the storm, so to speak. Um, that, that's more positive than negative. So, what, what in, what's it going to be in net terms for your company? Positive or negative? Oh, I think it'll be positive. Um, yeah, definitely the uh, the rains in the horticulture regions and out through the grazing country in New South Wales and Queensland so is, is definitely more positive than negative. And happy birthday to George Zamfir. Remember him. He's the Romanian panflautist, dragged from the obscurity of Bucharest salons by some enterprising music company executive, and he was huge in the 1970s. He's still around, turning 75 today, and teaching pan flute at the Bucharest Conservatory of Music. And here he is doing his biggest hit, The Lonely Shepherd. Actually, come to think of it, that was pretty boring, wasn't it? Good for lifts and supermarkets. Give me the Rolling Stones any day. And that's it for this week. Thanks to the Constant team and to ISM Studios for their music. I'll be back next week with Talking Finance, and I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning. Saturday morning.